1: Mobile banking
0: requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
2: If you can throw money at everything, you don't have the most creative solutions. If you're going to overwork yourself, you're not going to be really creative and alive on the job. And if you say yes to everything, then whatever these projects are, are quite possibly not going to be the best, most creative,
0: innovative projects because you shouldn't be there. That was Shannon Hayes on Psychologists Off the Clock.
1: We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health.
3: I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author
1: of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on ACT Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical
4: psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn
1: here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock.
4: We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kids pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to zocdoc.com slash POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's zocdoc.com slash POTC. ZocDoc.com slash P-O-T-C.
3: Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com
1: slash P-O-T-C to get 5% off your entire order. Many of us are feeling exhausted, anxious, stressed, or burned out, yet feel like we still need to work harder and achieve more. I've gathered a number of leading experts in the field of compassion, habit change, parenting, mindfulness, and social change that have strategies to help. On October 15th and 16th, I am co-hosting the From Striving to Thriving online summit with Mindful Communications and Mindful.org. I'll be interviewing eight thought leaders, including Jed Brewer on the neuroscience of craving, Kristen Neff on self-care, and Rick Hansen on healthy striving. This summit is a powerful and personal one, and there's no cost to attend. I really hope you can join me. My co-sponsor, Mindful Communications, is also hosting a free three-day virtual summit titled Healing Healthcare, a Global Mindfulness Summit on February 8th through 10th, 2022, that you won't want to miss. It's bringing together leading experts, healthcare executives, and thousands of frontline healthcare professionals to explore both individual and system-level approaches to support well-being. You can learn more by checking out the link in our show notes or by registering from StrivingToThriving.com. That's from thriving.com.
0: Had a chance to speak with the author of a recently released book, Redefining Rich, Achieving True Wealth with Small Business, Side Hustles, and Smart Living. What is so fun about this interview is that we cover a topic that we rarely talk about on Psychologists Off the Clock, which is money. And yet, money has a huge bearing on our well-being. I mean, finances are something that certainly stress people out. It's something that couples fight over, it's part of how we orient ourselves towards our work and towards our kids. And What I loved about this conversation is the integration of a discussion about wealth and richness with ACT philosophy. Um, The author of this book is a homesteader who runs a farm and a cafe, and she's a philosopher. And so it was just this really great read and such a fun conversation. And Diana, as soon as I read it, I wanted you to read it immediately. I was like, you have to read this because I just think it's so up your alley. So I'm dying to know what you think.
1: Oh, what a treat to listen to this interview. Yeah. And it it kind of was the collision of all these different worlds at once. At first, I want to be her friend. I'm like, Oh, where do you live? Because I want to have you over for dinner. Uh, But when I'm thinking about sort of this idea of redefining rich and side hustles and interests, it made me think about this paper that that recently, uh, I got in my inbox called a psychologically rich life. And in it, the researchers, Oishi and Westgate talk about sort of these dimensions of happiness. So the three dimensions of happiness that these researchers identify is first hedonic happiness, right? So hedonic happiness is having comfort and pleasure, having enough money, having a stable job. And what's interesting about that is that it actually does associate with finances. So when you talk about this link between happiness and money, it's a little more nuanced than like more money doesn't make you happier. It actually gives you a chance to pursue things like my Rose oil that I like to put on my skin, (laughs) you know, the things that are really lovely in life. And it's good to have, you know, but there's other dimensions of happiness that don't actually map on to finances. Meaning and purpose is the other one. And that second dimension of meaning and purpose. What's interesting about that is having a sense that you matter, like you contribute to the world and That is something that I think for us as therapists, in in certain circumstances, there can be a lot of meaning, but not necessarily pleasure. I mean, we've had that experience co-hosting this podcast, (laughs) y'all. Meaningful, but not always pleasurable, (laughs) editing those episodes. But it's also interesting is that meaning doesn't necessarily map on to finances either. So having more money isn't going to buy you more meaning, which is, I think, a lot of what she was talking about in this episode the third one around psychological richness was, was new to me to hear about that. And that maps onto things like having, a, having variety in your life, having interest, having perspective changes and curiosity. In some of their research, they looked at college students and college students that traveled abroad had a lot more of this type of psychological richness, even though they didn't report feeling any happier after traveling abroad. They also looked at obituaries of folks. And what they found is that folks that have more psychological richness in their life actually sometimes have a little bit less ratings on the hedonic happiness scale. So that component, I think, is also part of when we go back to thinking about in our life, how are we doing in these three dimensions? Do we have enough psychological richness, things that interest us and keep us motivated and engaged, and then also a sense of meaning and purpose? In their paper, they say that at the end of the day, when it, at the end of the day, someone that has a sort of that has a pleasurable life will say that was fun, and somebody that has a meaningful life would say that was worthwhile. I cha- you know, I, I made an impact. And then someone that had a um, psychologically rich life would say, what a journey.
0: Yeah. What an interesting journey. I love that. It kind of relates to, I'm, I'm preparing for an upcoming episode just as a teaser with Sonia Lubomirski, who is a really prominent happiness researcher. And she talks a lot about what are the predictors of happiness and you know of course genetics plays an important role that we don't have much control over we're just born with it and then 10% is predicted by our life circumstances so that would be things like money or how much we've traveled and then 40% has to do with intentional activities things like the attitude that we take or the the way that we turn towards our thoughts and the narratives and one of the things that just came up to me as you were talking about sort of these three dimensions of Um, hedonic experiences, like pleasurable experiences, meaning and purpose, and then interest in variety is that they kind of relate to each other within the intentional activities. Like we're less likely to habituate to the pleasures if we keep some variety in them, right? Hedonic adaptation is something that we talk about in this episode. And it's something that is certainly relevant for happiness practices is that like, if you do the same gratitude every day, it's nice, but it's not going to have the same impact. You got to vary it up in order to continue to have that pleasure and things that are meaningful. You want to balance them with things that are also pleasurable and also interesting. So Those three constructs are independent, but they really interrelate. And if you can sort of have that mindset, I I love that you're bringing up this framework because then people can sort of pick intentional activities within each to really optimize happiness and really optimize psychological richness and maybe even optimize financial richness too, because as you're saying, that makes some of the fun things easier to access as well. And that's also a really important element that I appreciated about this conversation is that we weren't just in the psychological philosophical weeds. We also talked about the practical realities that, you know, we, we do need to be able to fund a life and do things and reduce our stress by having access to material goods, including house and food and, and those kinds of things.
1: And there's a point of diminishing return in that, right? Because, you know, I think about, I always think about my advisor, Linda Craighead, that we'd work with clients that were eating So, they're like, when is the point when the chocolate cake no longer tastes good and it's just sort of blah, right? There's a point of diminishing return in terms of pursuing money. I see that all the time in my practice. I work with super high performing executives, but honestly, they come into my therapy practice and they have the same problems that everyone else does. Relationship problems. I'm not connecting with my wife. I feel like I'm uh, blowing up at my kids. I, I'm burned out. I'm not. I'm having a hard time taking care of my body. Right? I don't have a sense of meaning. Like, why am I even here? that can show up across the span of financial resources. And so that's where I think looking at things like meaning purpose and also interest curiosity. I love Judd Brewer, who's at Brown. And he. I interviewed him for this From Striving to Thriving Summit that I'm doing in October. And one of the things that he talks a lot about is interest curiosity versus deprivation curiosity. And when we're engaged in deprivation curiosity, we're pursuing something like trying to scratch an itch to make it go away. Like I wanna get that information or I wanna get that um, job or I wanna get that thing to like make me feel better. But interest curiosity is a never-ending journey. Of Once you pursue something, it leads you to the next thing. And then you're interested more. So I think, for example, for us with this podcast, Yael, as soon as we interview one person, we're like, oh, I want to now talk to that and learn more about that. And it's very intrinsically motivating. It keeps you going. So I'm interested in that kind of happiness where you feel engaged in your life. You feel like it's meaningful. Sure, you're enjoying the pleasures of life, but that's not the whole picture. And I think this episode gives you another view in from a farmer, from an agricultural perspective. I'm all on board with that um, to see what that could look like. And part of that is, you know, sitting on your porch with your dog, hanging out too.
0: Yeah. So we really hope that you join us in redefining what rich means for you.
1: Psychologist Off the Clock is happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis, you can really transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And they're really the premier provider in continuing education for
4: clinical professionals. Praxis has both on-demand courses as well as live online courses. They have beginner offerings like Act One from Matt Boone or more advanced offerings like Act Immersion with Steve Hayes. Some of their live online courses include classes in dialectical behavior therapy, superhero therapy, and act with parents. You can get a coupon code for Praxis Continuing Education on our website,
1: offtheclockpsych.com, for some of their live offerings. And we can really attest to the quality of Praxis. We've both participated in ourselves and have seen its benefits in our clinical work. So visit our
4: offers page at offtheclockpsych.com. Hey everybody, it's Jill. If you are a clinician and have been wanting to learn more about ACT... I have an upcoming full-day CE workshop through PESI called Breakthrough Act Techniques and Experiential Exercises, a clinical roadmap to help clients overcome psychological distress. You can either join me live on Friday, October 8th from 8 to 4 Pacific time, or you can watch on-demand anytime. To register, just visit my website, jillstoddard.com, and click on Learn from Jill Conferences and Workshops. I hope to see you there.
0: Shannon Hayes is a sustainable farmer, entrepreneur, author, podcast host of The Hearth of Sapbush Hollow, cafe owner, and CEO of Sapbush Hollow Farm in New York. She holds a PhD in sustainable agriculture and community development, and she's author of several books, including the just released title that we're going to be talking about today Redefining Rich, Achieving True Wealth with Small Business, Side Hustles, and Smart Living. Welcome, Shannon.
2: Yeah, I am so happy to be here. It's been a long time coming, you and I getting to meet each other.
0: It really has. I was put in touch with you through an author who I adore, who's become a friend of mine, Alex Ping, And I got to know him through his book, Rest. And I just am curious how you came to know him and, and what impact his work has had on on your work and on your philosophy of life that you write about in Redefining Rich. Well, in
2: Norwich, Vermont, the Norwich Bookstore, it's an independent bookstore. And this little shop has the best curated collection of books I've ever seen. It's like you go in, you think, "Ah, I'm not going to find much in here. And I never walk out without like a stack this big. And always they have not what I'm looking for, but what I apparently need. (laughs) One of those magical bookshops. And one time I was up there, um, I go up. On a fairly regular basis to do uh, continuing ed with King Arthur for the cafe.
0: Oh, that's so cool. I have a friend who's into bread making and she swears by those courses. Yeah, they're very good. And so I was in there and
2: I found his book on rest and read it. And I was giving a keynote for a group of farmers in Canada, the Ontario Organic Farmers of Canada. And I was reading his book going, He has no idea. The ag movement needs him (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) because we are, um, and that whole book, I mean, he was really where it started, where I started saying, he's uncovering and having a conversation that really needs to happen in my field in a powerful way, because we are so proud of how hard we work and how stupid we are about it. So I fanned him and that's how I got to know him. (laughs) And (laughs) I really think everybody should be reading his stuff.
0: I couldn't agree more. And, and yeah, I think he makes such a compelling argument that really just transforms how you think about work versus rest. I had just come, come
2: to the helm of the business. Um, when I discovered that and um, it was critical because it, it was at the moment of, you know, the transfer of power. And one of my hesitations was I couldn't do what my parents did like it was herculean what they did and um i recognized at the transfer of power that um it was in reading that book at the same time this is not sustainable and we talk about sustainability and in the sustainable farming movement we worship who's the strongest and who can be the jack of all trades and do everything and who can be the most independent and not need anyone I was taught my sense of purpose, my value, my contribution and worth it to the family, to the business, to everything was how much I prostrated myself to that culture. And so I got his book. Like I said, I was looking for like a Taina French novel or something. And I got his <laughs> book and recognized um, uh, uh, all that culture has to change because it's, it's a national crisis. But what Alex helped me to not be afraid to talk about was it's the labor. It's the backbreaking work. It breaks marriages. It breaks everything. And so I kind of had to do this double take on understanding the finances and understanding labor and life and love and rest. And how do you fold those together? And then yeah, out comes the
0: book. Okay. So you just talked in in some depth about the importance of rest in the world of agriculture. And and I think that that is an important topic to be thinking about more generally in in thinking about like what does it mean to be rich and i think sustainability is sort of this very popular term in agriculture but from as a psychologist i think about sustainability too right sustainability of well-being that you know if we if we push ourselves too hard in any particular role for example in parenting that that might be value consistent to really show up as a parent but is it sustainable over time and so I think that rest has this really important role um, in lots of different domains, including in wealth. And, and I, I want to sort of back up a little bit because we've talked a little bit about rest, but we haven't sort of defined like what is wealth. And so I wonder if we can just begin with with that question of what is wealth in more traditional terms? And then what are more flexible ways that we can think about it to create a more
3: sustainable world personally and sustainable world globally.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, the first thing is
3: I'm going to at some point tell you that wealth is that panting dog that's
2: at my feet who's interrupting (laughs) Here, (laughs) He plays a very critical part, but let's talk first about conventional wealth. I think you and I were uh, raised to understand wealth as money in the bank, first and foremost, Um, but also the prestige, you know, what's the title And, you know, what is your influence? How prestigious are you in your community with what you've done? And what are your achievements? And how much, how much green notes do you have to throw around at problems? And um, it's interesting that, you know, you're talking to me, a farmer, and I know you deal a lot with families and overall uh the our cultural shift that needs to happen. And here I am coming from agriculture. But most people are no more than a few generations away from a life on the land. And I would argue that people like us, we farmers, we are we are the roots of the culture of this nation. And so a lot of our practices and bad habits um in go down the generations. So um a work-life balance that's not in balance can, can, come, can be traced back to how we're living and how we're producing. Um, we are the foundations of a culture. We are the source of the food. So um, I think it's a very relevant place to be asking, what is wealth? Um, farmers are notoriously, in this country, unless you're in corporate agriculture, independent farmers are notoriously poorly paid people. We also have the highest rate of job, job satisfaction if we can hack it. Um, so I'm in a place to look at wealth and look at it firsthand. I look at it from my perspective, running a business that's very tied to land and community, but it's also very tied to our predominant culture because these are my customers. It put me on this trajectory of starting to understand where do we change systems and how do we understand wealth? So I started to learn that pure money in the bank It doesn't necessarily help build my farming community. It doesn't protect the land. It doesn't protect the soil and the water necessarily. It's no guarantee of that. But the people who care, the people who want to connect, who want to have value in terms of nutrition and in terms of stewarding the water and the soil, that's where the wealth somehow was. And I wasn't identifying it. And I started to develop in my ideas as I learned about Alex's work in REST that Wealth was a quality of life. Wealth was connection. And wealth was tied to these things that we were stewarding. Soil, water, sunlight, air. These are the things that were actually the foundation. And I'll tell you, most of the people with the the big expensive rings (laughs) and, and the fancy clothes, they didn't seem any happier than the ones who were laughing and saying, yeah, let's spring for some sausage from these people. It looks really delicious. They were having a lot more fun. Right.
0: I just want to emphasize this point that you made and then ask you to talk a little bit about the money paradox. Because really deeply entwined in your definition of wealth is this idea that money in the bank does not equate to happiness. And there's a lot of research supporting that. And so if we think about wealth really narrowly as like money in the bank, what we're excluding is sort of well-being more generally. And so I wonder if you can talk through these points about the money paradox, because I think they're really central in, in our ability to redefine richness for ourselves.
2: Right, um, And yeah, I think the money paradox, um, it's one of the most important parts of the books, because I got to tell you, just because I've written a book, doesn't mean I don't deal with problems all the time, like major catastrophes. (laughs) It happens all the time when you're working in living systems where all of a sudden you think you're doing fine and suddenly, oh my God, we just got a $20,000 bill. Where are we going to find that money? So um, the money paradox has been really helpful for me to be resilient in my business. It's one of my most important tools that I learned as a result of writing this book. So I'm really glad that you asked about, about it. The first thing to know about the money paradox is that it doesn't give you, um, it might up to a point if it's putting food in your belly and a roof over your head, it can help. Um, But after a certain point, research has shown that once you've met your fundamental needs for living, it's not going to increase happiness. So um, understanding that principle, let's go to the first corollary then, which is increased income does not guarantee increased happiness. And I'm, yes, it's tied to the, to the overall idea, but it's really important to emphasize and to keep re-emphasizing because we are really taught: if I just get that promotion, if I just get that nicer car, if I just get an apartment that has three bedrooms instead of two bedrooms, any of these things um, have have been sort of dangled before us as incentives to work harder, try harder. And to very often take away from our family's quality of life to go after them. Because we think that that's going to improve our happiness and our well-being. And it's not. And we just have to accept that. I mean, if you're going after a promotion because there's something in you that's calling to your soul and it's valuable because you've always wanted to do this, that's a reason to go after it. But stop thinking that increased income is going to increase happiness. It will not do it once your basic fundamental needs are met. The second thing, I've seen this so much in farming. um, It's really easy to see it firsthand, but the second corollary is that too much wealth, can be stagnating. And I know that can seem really hard for people to believe, but I live in a world where a lot of people go out into the corporate world and they make a lot, a lot of money and they always have their small farm dream. And I am a third-generation farmer. My daughters are fourth-generation farmers. So we've been plodding along, making our way for, you know, Satwish Hollow alone has been in business for over 40 years, and then there were my grandparents on their farms before us. So we have a long history of scrappy living. And I was raised in a culture with other Appalachian farmers who are also very attuned to scrappy living. And um, we actually get turned to by people who have made their corporate fortunes for advice. And so we've been in a situation a lot of times watching people leave corporate and enter agriculture. And the one thing they have that we don't is money. And we see very often that when you have money to throw at problems, every time a problem comes up, that's what you solve it with. And when you're working with living systems, and that involves the people in your family, that involves the people next door, that involves the animals in your system, even if it's pets and any living thing in your system and your quality of life and nature, um, money, money is only one tiny element and a lot of times if you just throw money at the problems all you do is farm away your money (laughs) in this business and you'll find out pretty soon those people go out of business fast because they don't find the enduring resilient solution that responds creatively to a family's needs to the land's needs to the environment's needs and to the community's needs it just doesn't it doesn't enable holistic thinking and um there was actually a guy who wrote a lot about this that um the concept of being anti-fragile. Having too much money can make you anti-fragile. You have too much to lose and you can throw it all down the toilet because you're not used to thinking of the other tools in your toolbox. Um, and um, if people are interested in that, the book is anti-fragile things that gain from, dis- from disorder. And uh, so this idea that too much wealth is stagnating is just really important to remember that having more doesn't make it better. It really doesn't. Um, and I could talk talk till I'm blue in the face about different times I've seen where (laughs) the most expensive solution could be not the best solution. Um, But the other final thing that's really important to remember in the money paradox, and this is the important one, is you're always going to want more money. And we need to understand that as human beings, it's what we're after. I mean, we can talk about how it's not important, but there's this little part of us that's always dreaming about the windfall you know, when, when your mysterious great aunt that you never knew died and left you $10 million, or that, that email that you get from someone in Africa that says, yeah, you have a relative with who wants to make you a billionaire. <laughs> you know, we all want it to be true. You'll always want more money. Um, it's just this human trait. And the sooner that you recognize that, Oh, that's just all of us. That's just who we are. It's not just me in my situation in a position of need. It just is simply the human condition to always want more money. Well, then you go, okay, that's part of being human and you can push on and move beyond it. But my husband and I have a story where we we recognize this. We were going for a walk one morning. And as we stepped off our porch, it was a beautiful snowy morning and the sun was shining through the snowflakes and the, the, the snow was, you know, it was hitting the dappled ground through the forest and it was just absolutely glorious and everything was perfect. And we were aware of some issues that we needed, like, you know, we had to fix some stuff on the building and the car was in need of repair, you know, just the ordinary stuff of everyday life. And we were like, hey, what would happen if we had like a $10,000 windfall? And we started thinking about what we would do. Would we fix the car? Would we patch the leaky roof? Would we would we maybe go on the vacation that some friends wanted us to do with them that we couldn't really afford? And um it was just a short while into this walk, first we'd imagined ourselves this great $10,000 windfall, and then within a few minutes we'd spent it all and felt impoverished. <laughs> And, and none of it had ever happened. And like, but when we started the walk, we were really happy. There was no problem. It was just ordinary stuff of life. So, as we wrapped our heads around that, we realized yeah, if you understand that we will always want more money and we'll always fantasize about getting more money, then it kind of puts that up on the wall someplace. And you're actually able to turn your head and go, yeah, that's just the way it is. I'm always going to want more chocolate too, but I don't eat that all day long.
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's this concept of uh, that psychologists call it hedonic adaptation that's really well founded. There's this really classic study of uh, from I think the 1970s of lottery winners and people who had been in a recent traumatic accident and had been rendered paraplegic or quadriplegic and looking at how they how subjective well-being changed over time and what they found was that lottery winners came back to The the middle that even though they had more access to more material goods, that their subjective well being didn't stay higher. Uh, it, It increased in the immediate aftermath, but then it kind of returned to baseline. And that people who now had a severe disability returned closer to subjective well-being. They, they actually sustained some uh, decrease over time, but returned much more to subjective the their former baseline of subjective well-being than one would expect. And that's just because we're wired that way, as you're saying. That's just kind of a part of being human. And evolutionarily, that makes sense, because if, you know, in pre-modern times you had a meal and then you were really satisfied and didn't sort of want more later you were going to be calorie starved. If you met a friend and you were really enjoying that social connection, but you didn't want more, you wouldn't be careful to protect and, and continue to nourish relationships, which was, you know, protective. So we're wired in with that. But in modern day culture, as you're pointing out, especially when it comes to pursuing more wealth, it can really lead us down this path of like always wanting more and never being satisfied and then not understanding why we're never satisfied and so pursuing more. And that can be a really unsatisfied trying treadmill of like you're working as hard as you can, but not really getting to the place of feeling that sense of more deep satisfaction. And as you're saying, and this is what we talk a lot about in the kind of therapy that I do in acceptance and commitment therapy, but the important thing to do is to sort of like unhook from it, to, to be aware that we're wired in that way but that if we can look at it and then unhook from it, then we can turn towards things that are more value consistent.
2: I would say then that gets back into then redefining what rich is for you, redefining true wealth. Because what we've noticed is when we unhook, so we know yeah, there's always an issue with more money. Let me tell you, we are always just moving the bucket around in the building to catch the water when the rain comes and go, okay. It's still structurally good. We're doing okay, um, and you realize what you do want more of is I want more time on the screen porch, on the glider, listening to crickets with my husband. Um, I want to be with him while he's playing his guitar to be able to sing with him, and so you start tuning into. And that's what the idea of the book is: is learning where that wealth really is. You know, I um I have a young man who is displaced during COVID. And he ended up with our family and he was 18 years old and didn't get to finish his high school education. So in the time he's lived with us, he had to climb several years in um, education to get a high school diploma. And he never thought that college was an option. And yesterday, you know, we made a commitment to work with each other. I'm going to start crying. He's had his first day at college and he came home and he, uh, it was the day that you and I take for granted. It was the day when you um, you go to the bursar's office and you argue about your bill, and you go to the, the the health center and say, "No, I have insurance, or I don't have insurance," and you fill out the form three times, and and you you go you know you meet some of the students that you're going to be taking classes with, and then you get lost, and then you try to figure out how you're supposed to find your first meal, like all these things that we would come home from and just roll our eyes, and. He never thought this world was available to him. And he came back and he was on fire. His, he was um, just soaring higher than a kite. And he told me every detail of his day. Everything that I just told you, even from where to find a place to park and getting a parking sticker and the conversation he had helping someone else get their parking sticker. These things that you and I take for complete, mundane, unimportant things. And to him, it was like the world. And if you want to talk to me about what wealth is, I got to sit down when he came home yesterday and say, tell me about your day and see it through his eyes. I don't care. I would not trade that in for any kind of windfall you realize that, I mean, the troubles, the struggles that we went through to get there and to have this moment where these mundane things that I would consider annoyances in a hairy day were special, magical, first-time experiences for him. That's wealth. And why am I doing what I'm doing? That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm keeping my home available for family, for friends, for community. I am, you know, my business. It's all about that. And what's my hed- hedonic adaptation? Well, I'm going after more of that. <laughs> you know, I want more connection. I want to see more ways that the world unfolds for other people and to experience their joys. And I, I want the love. I'm going after more. I'm still going after more. But it's not in the same way. When you realize, yeah, I always want more money. Yeah, okay. Well, that's kind of boring compared to. Did you hear about his day? Did you hear what it's like <laughs> to find a parking spot on a college campus?
0: <laughs> it is. It it's so amazing when you think about how the narratives that we have about our day to day activities, you know, depending on how we relate to them, it can be you know magical or mundane. And I think that's such a great example of infusing wealth into what many of us would consider mundane and that you know, having that relationship really opened your eyes to the richness that is available in some of those activities that we might take for granted. It brings me to one chapter that you write about in your book, although this idea is infused throughout, which is the quality of life statement and sort of having clarity for yourself about what kind of richness you want to build into your life and that when you do that when you have that clarity and what we we call that in acceptance and commitment therapy clarity in your values and but when you have that clarity about like what your purpose is and what you want to contribute or what you want to participate in that that can really help you to connect to those moments of richness the other thing that i also want to point out because it's so easy to sort of get really philosophical, but but there are mundane realities of like we need to be able to feed our children and keep a house over our heads. And what I'll say, too, about what I love about your book is that you have this really nice balance of being really strategic about making sure that you can fund a life, but also really clear in what a meaningful life is. And that, to me, is, I think, a really rare balance where where you sort of integrate both that sort of on the ground practical reality with some of the more psychological connected pieces that can really make for a deep and rich life. Well, I I appreciate that you noticed that um, all over my
2: desk are like um, calculators and, you know, inventory sheets and numbers crunching. Very early on, I was always a very, I would call it right-brained person. I remember one time someone gave me a test and I'd like scored off the charts, I was just so out there with my crazy ideas. And um, as I was a young woman uh, finishing up college, I started to recognize being as creative as I was, if I wanted control over my life, I needed business sense. And it was part of my brain that had never when you're a creative writer, and an artsy creative type, for some reason, our society says, well, then you stay over in that area. And, and, and we keep you there. And it's sort of like you're, you're a kept woman, (laughs) you know, you don't develop these skills to, to have a life with that proclivity. So I took some time. I remember taking my first GREs to go to grad school and I had, didn't have my scores back and I couldn't apply to grad schools yet. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go learn about money. And it was the first independent subject that I took on studying money and business. And it has always served me well. And I have now, it has become part of my wholeness to understand the ins and outs and how the finances work to keep a creative, open life. So I'm happy to get into that, but I will respond to your, your first question about the quality of life statement. So a quality of life statement is a basic. It can, it can be very nebulous or it can be very specific, but it's a statement of all the members in your household about basically redefining rich for yourself. What do you need to have in your life to know you're living the life you want, your best life? And I don't think this is just something that one partner does alone in their bedroom when no one's looking and then quietly follows it. It's both partners and all kids who are able to participate meaningfully. You know, some if, you, if they're still sucking on their socks or something like that, then no, they're a little young for that. But um, When kids are cognizant, they're able to participate in this dialogue. And it's a living document. It will change over time. Um, And a quality of life statement is something that I encourage everybody to write. By the way, I do have a free workbook at theradicalhomemaker.net. People can download it and get the workbook to start drafting this statement. But this statement is something that all members put together about what they need in their lives. I mean, our statement when we originally did this, it had things like, I recognized, and it was shameful to admit back then, I need a daily nap for me to feel rich and happy. I need to eat my lunch and then go upstairs with a book, read, and then fall asleep for a little while. You let me do that, I'll do anything i don't care i will butcher pigs i will i will you know chase chickens i'll flip people's
0: eggs in the cafe but let me have my nap i love that you share that you have a daily nap and i think that we should bring it out in the open and <laughs> and there's i mean going back to alex's work he has a whole chapter on napping and the the creative benefits and certainly mm-hmm. there's sustainability benefits and certainly there's emotional management benefits
2: well and when you talk about productivity um, and I do talk a little bit about that too, but I have learned that the nap increases my productivity tenfold. And so I can fit two work days in if in very few hours and very few active labor hours just by being well-rested and working at the right times. But anyhow, our quality of life statement had things like that, or my husband you know, wanting time for music, or with with our children when they were small, we wanted to be able to be home with them. We didn't want to be running everywhere. And we wanted our house to be one where people could be creative. And for me, it was about food. I did not want to be eating in restaurants. I wanted home-cooked food, and I wanted the time to prepare those meals. So these are all things that went into our quality of life statement. And you might think, well, what does that have to do with wealth? Well, that's a statement, that's a commitment that the family, the household members are making. And then every decision that you make goes back to that. And it's surprising when everyone internalizes what we're after, how much clarity you get in the decisions of life. You know, you could be offered a promotion and it's going to cause, you know, weekend in and evening travel and... You might look back at that quality of life and say, hey, we had travel as part of our goal, and that's a good job. But you might also look at it and say, no, I wanted to be home cooking dinner, and I wanted to be putting my kids to bed at 7 o'clock at night, and I wanted to be able to have a glass of wine with my partner. In which case, no, that's not the right job. (laughs) It's it's not something that you do for a short time. What are you building? What are you working toward? For me, um, I have always been a writer, and I knew I needed to write. And so I had opportunities to go into academia. And for me, I realized, I think that's going to impede on this quality of life and these books that are in me that I want to bring into the world. I need to accept that I don't get titles and I don't get paychecks because I'm on this other creative work and this is where my quality of life says I'm going to find it. So that quality of life guides your family's economic decisions. It guides your family's time decisions, And everything just has to go back and be measured up against that. And it's a surprising document that very few families do for themselves, but that can really bring about great change.
0: Yeah, it's such a great compass. And I, and the reason that it fits in so well with acceptance and commitment therapy is exactly all the reasons that you just described, because it kind of keeps you on the path that is true to what's important to you. And that doesn't mean that you can't edit and and modify what is important to you over time. You certainly can. But if you have this document, this living document as you're describing it, um, you can always go back to it when you sort of get pulled away by, you know, the keeping up with the Joneses or somebody telling you, you know, had you thought about this and and you can go back and say, well, is this consistent? Do I want to edit it? How important is this to to include or or is this just what's important to somebody else? And it's not that important to me. The other thing I wanted to sort of um, just dovetail in what you were saying is that it's almost like, you, you know, if you set the goal. And you have the goal clear in your mind, then you can figure out, I mean, from a straight financial perspective, like, what do I really need? How much money do I really need? Because if, you know, I don't care about the cars, then that's a different story than if I really do care about having a nice set of wheels. And that can help determine, you know, really the kind of job that you need to have or the kind of hours that you need to be working. And the other thing too is, you know, some people don't find a lot of meaningful richness in the work that they do. But if in your quality of life statement, you know, work is just something that you do between the hours of nine and five and you accept that and then you really extract a lot of richness from the time after working on the weekends, then that can be a decision that you make with eyes open as
1: well.
2: The other thing that I find um, as a female, I am... um, I'm on a journey this year to I'm on a I'm on a low guilt diet. Um, and I'm trying to learn in at this phase of my life like, wow, how do I how do this this phenomenon of guilt in my culture? It's really functioned a lot on me feeling guilty and and doing things that maybe I don't want to do or um, And the quality of life statement really taps into that guilt issue because particularly, I think as a wife and a mother, and a professional woman, guilt. I'm always supposed to feel guilty about something, um, uh-huh. <laughs> and you know, I have a best friend who's a microbiologist down in Argentina, and she says it's the patriarchy, Shannon. That is it. We just have to feel it, um, and <laughs> it sticks in my head. <laughs> but um, the quality of life has done statement has done a lot in helping me learn to grow through this expectation of guilt. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm about done with it in my life. It's not serving me any longer. But so, you know, yesterday um, I showed up at the farm. Uh, there was a lot going on and um, I sent my husband and my daughter off to pick up some meat from the butcher, which I was going to go do with my husband and schlep around. But my parents were sitting there on their back porch and rather than go with them, and go to the butcher and be the diligent runaround woman making the appearance of being busy and working hard, I sat down on the porch with my parents. I said, you know what? You two can handle this. You don't need me. I'm going to sit on the porch with my parents for three hours and drink coffee. And um, there was a time in my life when I would have stood up from that and said, oh my God, I can't believe I wasted my day like that. I I shouldn't have done that. I would be apologizing to everyone. There would always be some level of of self-loathing and guilt for making these decisions. But in our quality Mm -hmm. of life statement, we articulated, we want time for family and friends. And so there wasn't even a thought of guilt. There was no issue between my husband and me saying, yeah, you go work right now, I'm gonna do this because both were important and both had equal value in our lives and that quality of life just helps to navigate that you use the word compass that's exactly what it is it's a compass for making those decisions that are going to keep you whole and happy and guilt free
0: yeah and and it's sustainable because i think you know just getting back to this idea of rest which which i could talk about forever you know when you take that time away and refuel doing things that Revitalize you, that helps you to come back to some of the work that, um, you know, can fund the life that you're living. Yeah. We had three new business
2: ideas just as a result of sitting together and having coffee and laughing and telling stories. It's always that way.
0: I actually, I want to sort of segue into asking you to share some of the specific tips that you share in your chapter about saying no, because I think that, you know, (laughs) guilt is a big thing and we often don't have a lot of practice in saying no. And you as a business owner have a lot of responsibilities and a lot of roles and are being asked to do a lot of things. And so it is important to learn to say no, to learn to tolerate that guilt and to do it with clarity of like what is important to say yes to and what isn't. And you offer some really terrific guidelines in that. So I wonder if you can share some of your favorites.
2: Sure. Um, and I had another moment, again, uh, I'm a mom, I'm actually a homeschooling mom. And uh, people think if you're a homeschooling mom, or you're not going to a job, by the way, they think you have lots of time available, and they can make all mm-hmm. kinds of demands. They also can throw all their hand me downs at you because they think you're going to use that. So your porch can get piled high with people's cast offs, <laughs> and you can get cluttered. And there's incessant demands on your time. And then as a business, it's always pitched to you that you should join volunteer and sign up and be a, uh, be a business leader, which means you know do a million things a million committees um and so i started to figure out you know probably i don't know a year seven to ten somewhere in there of my parenting career if i don't learn to say no (laughs) um, i'm in trouble so one year for christmas for myself i decided that the gift i was giving myself was learning how to say no and um, i went on a quest (laughs) to learn how do people do this and one of the things I learned um, was that the most successful people say no more than they say yes. I would say it's at least 10 to 99 no's to one yes. <laughs> it's a high ratio. Um, and But I needed a way to do it to still be nice because I, I still fall victim to this idea that I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want to be, called. but I'm getting over that. I I learned to say no a while ago. Now I'm learning to give up the guilt. So now I'm just getting blood. No, it's easy. But
0: I, I will just point out that you, it is clear to me that one of your core values is like being kind and caring towards people, especially people in your community. And so I think there's this sense of when i say no to somebody that i care about that it isn't kind and so i think figuring out how to unhook those two from one another that we can say no and still be kind that we can say no and still say yes to other things that are more in line with what's important to us is is really a critical distinction
2: and you know you talked about how a nap can release creativity one of the things i had to learn about no was that it unleashes A more creative response. If you can throw money at everything, you don't have the most creative solutions. If you're going to overwork yourself, you're not going to be really creative and alive on the job. And if you say yes to everything, then whatever these projects are, are quite possibly not going to be the best, most creative, innovative projects because you shouldn't be there. And sometimes it's up to you as an individual to recognize that. And one of the things I had to learn in my path toward no was my choice to prune myself out was usually opening whoever it was up to something better than me so mm. it's it's not and and you're right my first thought was i'm turning them down and in my turning them down i'm assuming they will fail and i'm committing them to failure
0: yeah
2: and you know what it ain't about me <laughs> mm-hmm it really isn't. Um, very often I'm an introvert. I work best quietly and privately. And, um, for me to remove myself from a situation is often a very good thing. And so one of the things I had to first recognize on my path to know was that removing myself doesn't commit them to failure. They decide whether they're going to succeed or fail. All it does is remove me who might not be the best match from a situation. The next thing I learned, um, the best advice is I needed a simple, easy formula that I could fall back on because we get into one on one situations and you're on the spot and you're freaking out and you have nothing else to say other you than know, get out as fast as you can. So you say yes. Sure. Because you don't want to disappoint anyone. <laughs> and so I had to find a formula. And I found that um, in grad school, I learned about um, Fisher and Uri and the art of negotiation. Well, he, William Urey went on to write another book that isn't as well known, but so brilliant called The Power of a Positive No. And it's a book that did not get enough attention because let me tell you, he's got a formula in there that is fail safe and he calls it yes, no, yes. And, and he takes it all different kinds of case studies, whether, you know, it's negotiating war treaties to, you know, dealing with your neighbors. Yes, no, yes. And what that means is you just identify what your core values are that you are saying yes to, because it's usually a core value that you're responding to that requires the no. So identify what that yes is, then say no, and then say what you can say yes to. So if you said to me, Shannon, um, I would really like you to, uh, join this new committee that we have, um, where we meet online every week and discuss the future of things that are going on. Um, the hackles are going to go up on the back of my neck because I don't have time for a one hour thing, but I really like you and I want your thing to be successful. What am I going to do? Well, yes, no, yes. Yes is I have saying yes to my quality of life. And that means um, one of the things we've identified in my quality of life is I always say no to meetings. (laughs) If it's a group meeting, I don't go one-on-one. I participate. I've just learned. (laughs) But so I might say to you, you know, I, I really have a lot going on um, with my family. That's really important to me. And I feel like I need to make time. I need to have enough time for my creative life. I need to turn this down. I would, however, be happy to contribute some articles to whatever you're putting out. Or I would be happy to share with you the names of five other people who might be a better fit. So Mm -hmm. you're not completely rejecting. What you're really doing is helping the requester on their quest to find the right matches. And Mm -hmm. so yes, no, yes, Um, I was in a situation where I was helping to take care of somebody's kids all the time and I I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I finally had to say, you know what, I'm, I'm doing this because I love you and I want a relationship with you, but I'm falling apart on the inside. I need to take care of myself. Um, can we agree that I'll take them once a month? You know, so that it's yes, no, yes. And, When I started to understand that formula, it became a lot easier for me.
0: I I love that formula. And I also just wanted to give an example that had happened to a colleague of mine recently that is very, uh, very explicitly in the financial realm, which is that she got invited to do a talk and she was really busy um, and they had offered her not that much money, but the organization was one that she really valued. So she said to them, you know, I'd really like to help you. I really think I have something to offer, and but right now I'm really busy, so I can't do it for that amount, but because it doesn't cover the patients that I would be saying no to, I could do it for this amount. And if that isn't doable, then maybe we can revisit this down the road, and they ended up meeting her her bottom line of her financial request, and so I think sometimes saying no can actually even be financially rewarding, and it, not always, but I think there are ways too, if that's important to you to you know craft that yes, no, yes" script in ways that support that or at least increase the likelihood of you getting those those kinds of needs met absolutely. So maybe let's end talking a little bit about the role of diversification in wealth. And one reason that I really like your discussion of diversification and, and I think you come at it as a farmer, right? The diversification in agriculture is so important. I come at it as somebody who writes a lot about working parenthood. And diversification of roles is something that we often think about that can be depleting. But actually, what we find in research and also, you know, when we sort of zoom out and look at the experiences of having lots of different roles in life is that they can be very vitalizing. And so I I wondered if you can talk a little bit about the role of diversification in defining, in redefining wealth and also in supporting ongoing richness in life.
2: Okay. Well, I'm going to start by saying, uh, in farming, we used to talk about diversification as, well, you're not just a sheep farmer, you have sheep and pigs and chickens, or you're not just planting soybean, you're planting soy and wheat and corn. Well, all of those are animals and they all require work, or all of those are plants and they all require the same kind of work. And What I started to recognize was diversification for resilience, for inner peace, and for stability requires different income streams that are using different parts of your body, but um, also employ different, just different parts of your life. Diversification has to be understood in a more broad sense. And I started looking at all the different ways that we were generating income, what was working, what wasn't working. And I started to recognize there are basically four types of income streams and the IRS would not agree with this the way I'm going to explain it. But this is, this is the redefining rich way. There are four different types of income streams that are all valid in having a truly wealthy life. And the first one is meaningful work and meaningful work means it's work that makes your soul sing and you want to be there and it lines up with your quality of life statement. And, That's only one of four, and I'm going to recommend that you choose any three of what I'm going to talk about, by the way. So the first one is meaningful work, and the reason why that might not be valid is I explained in the book that it's actually employment income is the most expensive form of income to have. And if you want to understand the nuts and bolts of that, it's all in the book. I won't get into that, but it is expensive because of the taxes. The second form of income is business income, self-employment income. And, um, that actually can work in tandem with meaningful work because it makes your meaningful work tax liabilities much less severe. Um, so that's business income where you're doing things for yourself and you're making things work. And those are two conventional forms of income, work, you know, employment and, and self-employment. And then the third type that I talk about that this society's too much has a blind eye toward, is non-monetary income. And if you read my book, you'll find out, oh my goodness, that is the single greatest source of income in my family, which is often common in a small farm. But um, non-monetary income could be caregiving, It could be, um, I happen to have a child who had some severe learning disabilities, and um, I trained myself to be her person every single day. Um, It can be trades and barters. You know, I bartered for all my internet. (laughs) Um, It can be growing your own food, cooking at home, all these things that a lot of times that a housewife might have done that actually have very powerful economic value. Um, I had written another book called Radical Homemakers, where I looked at this more in depth. And I saw a lot of men doing this as well. By the way, it's not just females who pick up the non-monetary income. It could be repairing your own car, repairing your own computers, anything that you can do for yourself with your family that reduces the outflow of cash. And that's all tax free. So that's a very affordable income. And then the final one is passive income. And the IRS has a very specific definition of this, but mine is more broad because coming from farming um, passive income is anything where you don't have to shovel so many pounds of manure and you don't have to scrub toilets in from your cafe floor and all these different things where it's, it's less physically grueling. And I think we've kind of gotten this idea in our heads Those of us who uh, are in the dwindling middle class, that somehow passive income is for the privileged and the pampered. Um, But passive income is so important in figuring out where you can identify some because um, we rely on our bodies, particularly in my line of work. uh, If you're a chef and you're running a farm, I rely on my arms and my feet and my hands for a lot. And passive income is what we need to guarantee our security when we can't. I mean, I'm just coming to you. I'm finishing up around with a tick-borne illness. Um, and, and that could be very expensive. And, but we've learned passive income covers us. You know, if I need to take a few days off and we still have enterprises going where we're not working all the time that's really helpful. And passive income could be rental income. It could be vacation rentals, like an Airbnb, you, you know, a spare bedroom that you rent out. It could be royalties on a book. It could be something that you create that you get royalties on. It could also be investing in someone else's business, making loans to a, a local entrepreneur. Um, there are many ways to do it. And um, of those four types, employment income, business income, non-monetary income, and passive income, I recommend that you choose three, but that they all match up with that quality of life. And the other thing, as you mentioned, the quality of life statement evolves, these forms of income are going to evolve too. You may not have the ability to have passive income right now, but it should be on your radar, you know, eventually work toward having that at some point. So you have more stability and you have the ability to take care of yourself and your family and stay balanced.
0: Yeah. I love that because it's it's not putting all of your financial eggs in one basket. And when you do that, you protect yourself and you also can create other forms of richness beyond just the dollar value.
2: I think so too. And I think that means maybe surrendering some of the conventional identities that society wants us to embody. But I think many very few of us fully fulfill the only identity that whatever tag society puts on us, it lets us be the complex, diverse, interesting people that we're meant to be.
0: Absolutely. Well, Shannon, thank you so much for joining me today. And I will definitely recommend that folks check out your podcast, The Hearth of Sapbush Hollow, and pick up a copy of Redefining Rich. You offer so many really on-the-ground tips, and I didn't even have we didn't have a chance to talk about a lot of them, but I will just say quickly, just as a little teaser, that I map out my week as you recommend in your book now, religiously after having read your book, and it is such a great organizing tool. Shannon offers financial tips, organizing tips, decluttering tips, quality of life tips. And I know people can also find out about more about your work through your website.
2: Yes, they can go to the radicalhomemaker.net and they can find out about the farm, the cafe. They can uh, learn more about the podcast, the blogs, but also if they wanted that uh, free workbook that takes them through the quality of life statement and takes them through looking at their different income streams and things like that. Just some of the basic stuff that is available for download there.
1: Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your
4: podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller.
3: This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.